on the show today. One of the biggest universal lessons we learned from the industrial age was division of labor. If someone is in sales, they get good at sales. If someone's in bookkeeping, they get good at bookkeeping. If someone's in working with clients, they get good at working with clients. So teams, 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 outperform solopreneurs. I'm your host, Andrew Silito. This podcast is a result of my purpose to help ambitious business owners like you avoid stress, overwhelm, and burnout in the workplace. In this podcast, I share everything I've learned about how to grow a profitable business, stay fit and healthy, maintain strong relationships, and develop the right mindset for success. So you can thrive, feel inspired, and work at your full potential. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to the show. It's an absolute pleasure. Hey, mate. Thanks for having me on the show. Daniel, I'm, I'm kind of in awe. You know, you, you're one of those people that you, you've been a mentor to me for longer than you realize. Following you for years, I'm sure you have been to so many people. You're so generous with your work. I want to read out some things just about you, you know, your bio, because it it's so impressive. You know, you've been an entrepreneur, a best-selling author, I think four books now. There's a f- few others, but there's four main books, yeah. An international speaker. Uh, you started with nothing, and I, I'm really looking forward to hearing your story around that. And I know you've got sh- some great stories to share with us. Uh, you've built a successful multi-million dollar business in Australia, uh, in UK, Singapore. You've worked with some of the most successful people, and through that that journey of, of your own work and and meeting these people and, and observing them, you develop these five strengths that you've identified all top performers, top entrepreneurs, business owners, business leaders possess. So I'm really looking forward to to learning more about that. So Daniel, tell us about your experience as an entrepreneur. You've made a difference to so many people's lives. Entrepreneurialism is is clearly in your DNA. Tell us, how did it all start for you? There were some early experiences of running a garage sale at age 10. That was pretty magic. We had had a little house fire, some stuff got damaged and I cleaned it and sold it. And that was magic. It was a moment of empowerment and feeling something bad had happened, but we'd made it good and we'd made money. And it was my kind of first awareness around money and that you could do stuff for money. Around that same time, I did some fundraising for the Scout Hall where we cleaned cars and pulled weeds and did gardening. And that was also this kind of awareness that you could do stuff for people. You could sell things for money. You could do stuff for money. When I was a teenager, I worked at McDonald's and I was fascinated by the fact that the owner of the McDonald's, a guy called Randy, who owned our McDonald's, he never came in. Like he owned the McDonald's, but we only saw him two or three times a year. And I really found that fascinating that we all work and run this business and he just kind of pops in. And when he does pop in, he just kind of comes in and says hi and has a wander around and, uh, you know, hands out some awards and badges and that's it. We, we don't see him for another four months. So, uh, you know, I just fascinated by all of that kind of stuff as a teenager around that age of trying to figure out what is it that I wanted to do. I just became aware of this idea of, starting businesses, solving problems in a commercial way, and that, you know, that would be something I'd be really excited to do. And I, as strange as it sounds, under my bed as a teenage boy, I had a copy of the E-Myth. I look at myself now and I think, what a weird teenager. And then I kind of late teenage years, I got rich dad, poor dad and yeah, uh, all yeah. of that. So I kind of threw some threw some logs on the fire and I, of, of entrepreneurship yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. just, yeah, really, really loved it. It sounds to me that that garage sale, because I can relate to it. Mine wasn't around money. You know, mine was, I, I, I just remember clearly, you know, my background is hockey and I just, the first time I had a stick in my hand and skates, and I was like, this is what I'm doing. They, they say that there are two moments in your life, you know, that are most important, the, the moment you're born and the, the moment you realize why you were born. 
you know, like the purpose. And it sounds to me that something went through you that, that just fired you up and the, the path was set, you know, for you. Yeah, it's funny because I've never said this. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you something that's, that's funny. Two things happened that day at age 10. This guy wanted to negotiate with me about the microwave and he demanded to talk to my dad. And my dad came out and the guy says, oh, your son wants $20 for the microwave, but it's damaged and uh, blah, blah, blah. And my dad says, it's my son's business. You'll have to negotiate with him. And he turns around and just walks off. And here I am as this 10-year-old being referred to as it's his business. And I I honestly felt 10 foot tall in that moment. Like I felt like, whoa, like that's cool. Um, The other thing that happened is that my mum joking at the end of the day i'd made three hundred dollars which was enough to buy a sega master system and a green fluorescent bicycle and and i had this cash this big wad of cash and i remember mum saying jokingly now oh you've got more money than we do but at the time as a 10 year old kid i didn't realize that she was joking and i freaked out and kind of thought whoa i've got more money than my parents now and all i had to do was just make these sales it was years later that i realized she was obviously joking and um, and it was kind of like this, you know, big moment of like, whoa, okay. Like was, yeah. there was yeah. this mix of responsibility and creativity and power all rushed to my head. It's quite a crossroads in your life, isn't it? That I wonder if another opportunity might have come, but you're doing the, the garage sale, selling the microwave, your dad kind of handing over the response. I mean, there's a message in there for parents as well, isn't there? That those pivotal moments in life where we think we need to save the child and help them and get too involved. But actually, there's a there's a big lesson to hey let go and how someone can how it can really form their character. I could digress there and talk about leadership in the same way. You know, I think leaders do it with their, their, yeah. their new people starting the business. They try and step in too much and get in the way sometimes of the learning. Yeah, yeah. There's a great yeah. lesson with with the same lesson. I'd never put two and two together. But Randy, the owner of the McDonald's, letting us do our own things, letting us make our own mistakes. If I can digress into leadership. I'll tell you the other thing that was really interesting at McDonald's. We had two managers who were the store managers, uh, Megan and Rachel. I think it was Rachel. Anyway, Megan was just amazing, like an incredible leader, and Rachel was just horrific. When you got her as the shift manager, you just hated it. She bullied. She micromanaged. She was just so like such a micromanager and her default was you're going to screw this up and I'm going to have to babysit. That was her lens she viewed the world through, that you can't be trusted. And Megan was the opposite. She was like, you're smart and you can be trusted and I know you'll figure it out. And there's this tiny, tiny, tiny moment that I remember where I was out the back <laughs> reconstituting onions, which is actually a thing at McDonald's. You you hydrate the onions so they come in a powder format and you have to add water to them so that they turn back into onions. And I was doing this quickly And Megan walks past and she glances and she says, "Uh, hey, Daniel, if you use warm water, the onions turn slightly pink. And then she doesn't say anything else. She doesn't complete the sentence. She walks off. And I remember stopping and thinking and going, oh, well, I don't want them to turn pink. I need to use the cold water like it says I should. Rather than telling me what to do, she gave me the missing piece of information and then let me take it from there. To this day, when I look, because I've got a team of about 100 people, but to this day, that leadership lesson is in my head of give people the information and let them figure it out. Step back, let them yeah. let them do their thing, you know, let, yeah. let them figure out what to do with the onions. 
I think it's so important. And one of the things we talk about on the leadership program is war stories. You know, every leader has a war story, somewhere where they failed, something they look back on and cringe and think, oh my gosh, you know, I couldn't possibly share that story. But of course, when we help them design the story, it's the funniest story. You know, when you deliver it in a way and there's a lesson to be learned. And we always say to them, you know, you, you're getting in the way of people having those stories by meddling, you know, and, and interfering with the client and taking over the client because you're not, you're not confident they're going to see it through. But you've got to let them have that, that opportunity, right? And that's, I think that's what I'm taking from this is don't get in the way, get out of the way, set, kind of put it out there and then let them work with it and, and have a lesson. But I would like to just fast forward a little bit then and, and start to understand how your entrepreneurial journey developed. You know, maybe we could hear some of the, the success stories, but also I, I'm assuming because you're an entrepreneur, there were some failures as well. Let's go some context for some success stories. So I started my first company at 21. It took off pretty rapidly, did over a million in the first year, got to 10.7 million in year three. So in year three, we actually hit a million dollar a month in sales. And so you can imagine that's pretty rapid growth. Only 5% of companies ever get to a million dollars. We were a million a month in, in the third year. So it was pretty wild. Yeah, 24, 25 years old when that was going on. So that was a fast start to entrepreneurship. And then that was in Australia. And then I uh, relaunched in the UK and you know took off again. Bang, 2006, 2007 came over here. I think we did four million in sales in year four million. And, and what was this business? What what were you doing? So business number one was um, a business that I set up. It doesn't have a clear definition, but it was essentially a marketing agency. I guess is the closest thing you'd call it to. Except what we would do is I would find things that I thought were massively under promoted, under marketed. I'd form a partnership with the company and do promotions. And I'll give you some examples. We formed a partnership with a financial planning company in Brisbane. And we blew them up with leads and basically did lead generation, flooded them with leads. And we made a ton of money with those guys. We did the same with the training and education business in, in Queensland. And we took them national and, and made a ton of money with those guys. And then I did one with a franchise where they had a $60,000 franchise that they were selling. Over the previous three years, they had um, done about a million dollars worth of franchise sales. We did the marketing and lead generation for them in partnership and we got a percentage of everything they they did and we blew it right up. So millions and millions and millions of, of sales. I did a, a bedding system, like a, a foam mattress bedding system. I didn't do a lot of things. Had probably, I don't know, five different projects that we took on over three years, but um, everything was in partnership and we were on revenue splits for revenue share for all of it. So lead generation is something that every business is trying to crack, you know, particularly since, you know, the evolution of, you know, social media. And now there's been this influx of you know, marketing agencies, charlatans, I would refer to as who are trying to, you know, sell this proposition of, of lead generation. It sounds to me that you were quite, you were early in that, that development. So early. Yeah. Most of our campaigns were newspaper ads. Basically, the formula was that I would look for a business that was really over-invested in quality of what they did. So if you think about a business as having the supply side, which is doing something for a customer once they pay, and then there's the demand generation side, which is letting people know that they've got value. So if you think about the problem of business is being valuable and being perceived as valuable, essentially, there's two major problems you might have in business, which is you're not very valuable in the first place, in which case... If you're perceived as valuable, you're going to let people down, right? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So not being valuable is a problem. 
And then there's being valuable but not being perceived as valuable. So you've got all this value to offer, but no one knows about it and you're not very good at talking about it. You're not very good at educating the market and all that sort of stuff. The insight that I had was that there were some companies that were very, very good at over-indexing on being valuable and they were massively into the development and into the, the building of their product and their knowledge and all of that sort of stuff, but they were too close to the product or service and that they were just so shit at talking about what they do and, and telling people about it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, the big mistake that I saw was that they talk about what they do rather than educate the customer and take the customer on a journey. So, for example, if you're a financial planner, you're an amazing financial planner, and you put all this energy and effort into customer service and quality assurance and just everything is all about the financial planning, you're going to go to market and try and tell people about the benefit of all those financial planning innovations. And Mm -hmm. most people are not walking around asking the question, tell me all about the financial planning innovations. So like, for example, when I blew up the financial planning related company, I ran an ad in the paper that said, feeling crabby watching your investments move sideways. And I had a picture of a crab holding some money and, you know, crabs move sideways. So it was like feeling crabby watching your investments move sideways. And it said, if you're feeling frustrated that you don't have investments that perform the way you want, come and learn from our experienced team of market and financial analysts who can share with you over the last 12 months what's been performing, what's not been performing, and what their view is for the future, something like that. But it was essentially, it's pretty simple language. The copy matters. That's the thing, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, with these things, not to be underestimated. And it was funny because all the marketing materials for this company in the lead up, they were all talking about dollar cost averaging and portfolio distribution and the breakdown of bonds versus equities and all this kind of stuff that really no one's asking. It's like you go to a, a dinner party and you're sitting next to someone who's talking at you and you never asked them any of these questions and now they're talking at you. I was a, a moron 22-year-old and probably my strength was that I translated their offering into something that a stupid 22-year-old could understand. I probably couldn't do it the way I did it back then anymore because I've probably grown up a bit, but I was so thick that I had to translate these offers into really dumb 22-year-old language. Uh, but do you think that's the, the naivety, the value of naivety sometimes in your 20s? You know, that you, we, just, we walk up to people, we say hi, we network in a different way. And I look at, exactly. so, you know, sometimes young people, you know, and it, I'm envious of that naivety because obviously as we get older, we lose some of that naivety and that we start overthinking things. and We understand complexity. We, we understand the world is yeah. not as simple as, it's not so black and white, but, you know, when you're 22, everything's black and white. It's, you know, super simple. There's goodies and baddies and this, that, and the other. I just translated these offers into really simple language, ran ads in the newspaper. So the other thing that I, I was good at was crafting an introduction presentation. What me and my team would do, and we only had a fairly small team at the bit... Even when we're doing 10 million, I think the team was 17 people, if I remember correctly, something like that. So it wasn't, wasn't a massive team. That's why we were crazy profitable. The thing I was really good at is crafting a quarter page ad that was simple and would get people's attention and that would, they could understand. And it was written in the language of what they were struggling with, not the language of what the business wanted to say. My secret source was something called the frustration headline. And the frustration headline was not to talk about the product, but to name the frustration someone would feel if they didn't have the product. 
one headline that we did for a business-related company was this guy looking frustrated and it said, if I stop working, my business stops working and then I stop earning so I never stop working. And that was a hugely performing headline. It had on one side, it had a guy like this and on the other side, it had a stop sign. It said that headline, but it didn't say what it was, didn't say what the product was. It just said there was this guy who's really frustrated that he can never stop working. And then you read on and it's like, okay, come along to this business training evening where we talk about putting systems in place and creating recurring revenue. And and it's like, come along to the business training, business consulting workshop. But it starts with the frustration. So I basically pioneered this, or in my head, I pioneered, I, I was really into this idea of creating a frustration headline. So that was a big thing that mm-hmm. I was very deliberate about. And then the next thing was crafting the intro. So crafting the intro was we would work with our partner, our client, to create a really compelling 90-minute presentation about what they did and to do a nice blend of education, entertainment, and then a call to action to work with them. The whole thing was 90-minute workshop, and then we'd have these big, beautiful diaries down the back of the room, as in like a nice oversized diary, and we would just have the week ahead out there, and you could basically, if people were interested in working with the company, they booked in for an appointment, and that was the appointment setting phase, and that basically was where my business ended and their business began. So the partnership was that I would create the ad. The ad would get people to the introduction presentation. The introduction presentation would get people to book into the diary. And that was my formula. That was my system. But it's something that you obviously doing very naturally, which I think aligns with being an entrepreneur, which is that frustration is identifying a frustration or identifying a problem in the market. And clearly you've been able to do that, which is I think essentially what entrepreneurs do is they identify a problem in the market and they build something to try and solve that problem. Yeah. Is that fair? So that, that ability to see the frustration must be a, a strength for, a, for an entrepreneur, I'd imagine. I think it's also why a lot of kids who are not good at school go on to be entrepreneurs because the schooling system is designed as a system for producing what's called component labor. So you build up a set of skills and you try and plug that skill set into something. So you start with, I'm a doctor, I need to plug into a hospital. I'm a lawyer, I need to plug into a law firm. So it's you're starting with a solution and then you're plugging into a bigger system. The entrepreneur starts with curiosity. What's the frustration? Mm -hmm. What's the problem? What's the unmet need? And then they cobble together what might solve that. And then three or four iterations later, it looks like something that was designed well from the beginning, but ultimately they started with a problem and then tried to figure out a solution. That's also why a lot of people who are B or C students actually end up being good entrepreneurs. A students tend to get good at the labor game and and selling their labor into bigger systems. Are you a business owner, business leader, entrepreneur who wants to be more influential and become more inspiring and build winning teams? Then head over to workshops.andrewsilito.com. Yeah, I guess if I think about that, that's probably the turning point in our business because, you know, I've been doing leadership development now since 2008 and really just went through the motions. You know, we're a leadership company. We do leadership and it's like, well, Mm. so does everybody. But it wasn't until I spotted a a kind of a problem within a specific market that needed help. And that's how the player coach program came about because it was this high performing consultant who'd been moved into a a leadership role, but still had a sales target or still trying to grow a business, but building a team around them and they're spinning these plates. And I thought, if I can solve that problem, all of a sudden, that's a frustration 
And if I look back, that's when our business turned a massive corner because we weren't just a leadership company anymore. We were solving a real frustration for people. Yeah, I think um, very few people are roaming around saying, I need a leadership consultant. But they are probably roaming around saying, we've got someone who doesn't fit. Or in many cases at the moment, so many companies are saying, I just wonder if my team are performing remotely. Everyone's working remotely. Are we actually leading a team or are we drifting in the right direction? But I'm not sure. Like how many hours a day are, are my team actually working? Who knows now? So then there's that like leadership and management challenge that they can relate to. And it's yeah. kind of like leading via Zoom. Like if we went with the frustration headline, you might say something like, I've been asked to lead a team. All I can do is see tiny images of them on my screen, or I've been asked to lead a team from a screen. You know, it's got to resonate to... straight away, isn't it? You know, it's just em- yeah. it's empathy at the end of the day, isn't it? It's just, and I think yeah. that's whether you're running a business or an entrepreneur, it's been able to to really understand that the frustration to be able to walk in their shoes and then help them. You know, from that that perspective, from that lens, that that makes total sense. It'd be great if we could start talking about. I guess this is your flagship book, the key person of influence. I got a bit of product placement here behind me. It's a very powerful book. I love its simplicity. I love its the fact that it kind of gives you that roadmap and it makes you really think about these five key areas. So I, I wonder if we could start talking about that, these five strengths that you've identified from all, you know, all the people that you've worked with, your own experiences. Mm-hmm. You've seen that every entrepreneur, every business leader, business owner has. Yeah. Where, where should we start with that? Let's pick up where I left off. We were running these weekly introduction events, sometimes two or three a week, and we generated so many leads that we innovated this this secondary event, which was a three-day boot camp type thing for one of our clients. And the way that we would get people to come along to that, it was either two or three days, but it was like, maybe it was two and a half days. But basically, the way that we would get people to come along is we would book a big name speaker and we'd have someone who was on the telly or a best-selling author. or And that was our reason when we pick up the phone and say, hey, would you like to come along to this boot camp thing we're running? We've got this amazing person who's an incredible speaker. So I was booking these people if they were living local, they were five to 10 grand for a session for a couple of hours. Um, if they were international, they were 10 to 20 grand, uh, you know, including travel. This became a bread and butter thing that I was working with best selling authors, working with people who were, you know, semi famous or well enough known and that sort of stuff. I was booking them regularly, right? And I was in business with people and I started getting quite good friends with them and people who had built multi-billion dollar companies, people who had won major awards, entrepreneur of the year type people. So all of those kind of people were around. So I had this experience of seeing a lot of them in a short space of time and spending time with a lot of them while also spending time with hundreds of people in the audience and kind of almost like a very visceral difference between someone sitting in the audience who's paying to be there versus someone who's on the stage being paid to be there, who's hard to get, and someone who's easy to get. And it's kind of like there's this contrast and I'm standing off to the side and my view is that's a big person on the stage and there's like hundreds of people who have shown up to see them speak. So I'm getting this real thing night after night after night after night. So internally, you know, we just kind of call these people key people of influence and all that sort of stuff. We need an influencer. We need someone, you know, person who will basically draw a crowd. A couple of things happened. Number one, when I first saw social media in 2007, 2008, I saw Twitter and Facebook and I really immediately understood that this would be a huge platform for the creation of these key people of influence, that this whole building a brand thing was going to be something everyone would have to do. 
So I like immediately clocked that and it's like, oh, I know a bit about this. And I started doing a few little workshops on social media, you know, building a brand on social media. And I very quickly identified what did all of these people have in common? And they all had these five things that they would do, every single one of them without talking to each other. So all of them were very, very good at telling the same pitch story, right? And pitching their business. And if you do a roadshow, if you do a tour with them, you hear them say the exact same thing night after night after night. So they perfect their pitch. They know exactly what they want to get you enrolled in. They know exactly what they want to get you excited by. They want to energize you and enroll you. And they pitch. So pitching was number one. Very good at pitching and always pitching, forever pitching at the bar, at the coffee, in the day, in the foyer, right? Pitch, 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 pitch. And then the second thing is all of them had written a book and all of them gave away copies of the book. So they were forever turning up and having a box of books and anyone who was a VIP or anyone who was a a singled out kind of person, oh, have a copy of my book, have a copy of my book. So they were kind of like giving away these books. So this was very common as well. So I just call that publish, right? Pitch, publish. Mm -hmm. The third thing is that they made their money through products so that they could turn up and talk and as if by magic, the products got sold. In the book, I call this the Eiffel Tower versus the Parisian landscape that the Eiffel Tower doesn't make the money. The Eiffel Tower draws you to Paris. And then when you're in Paris, you spend the money in the Parisian landscape. And they act as the Eiffel Tower for their product and service ecosystem. So the more people who turn up to see them speak, as if by magic, all the things that they're involved in, and sometimes they have seven or eight different businesses and, you know, they're constantly just, you know, putting people in the right direction. So that's products. So pitch, publish, products. Profile, extremely protective of their profile, always looking for a platform, always looking for more social media or more traditional media, more stages. You know, getting in front of an audience is a major priority for these people, constantly wanting to up their profile. And then um, partnerships. So one of the things that all of them would do is if we were staying in a hotel, super, super common that while they're there, they're doing some sort of a joint venture or partnership or deal Mm -hmm. in the foyer or they'd book a suite and they would actually do meetings in their suite and actually part of the experience of hanging around them is just watching them constantly doing partnerships and deals and deal-making, deal-making, deal-making. So I called this the big five pitch, publish, product, profile, partnership, and it was just common to all of the big yeah. people who were playing that role. And I just they were very similar to each other. It was quite shocking. They, none of them knew each other, but they all did these things. Um, yeah. So I clocked it. Well, I suppose that there's people who- people listening to this now going, ah, that makes total sense. You know, they look at what people do and follow this process. And I, and I think people underestimate that, you know, cause people want to do, they want to freestyle. They want to kind of have their own thing, be authentic. But what I'm hearing is the best leaders. And we see it in high performance sports as well. You know, when, when somebody does something on in, in my game on the ice and they make a move, everyone goes, wow, how creative. I'm like, no, watch them in practice. They've done that. They've practiced that same move over and over again. And they just repeat that pattern and it makes, they make it look like they're being creative and genius. And I think business is the same. I think sometimes we we try and recreate things, but actually there's there's always this pattern, this process that yeah. if we follow it in the right way, and, and actually I'll, I'll be honest, it's probably something I've been a victim of that. Let's see how complicated I can make it. We love novelty. We love newness. And we experience a lot of people who are doing brilliant things and they all seem to be doing something and we're trying to learn from all of them. But here's the funny thing. I know people who have toured with Ed Sheeran and Ed Sheeran does the same show three times a week in front of 100,000 people 
and yeah. it's the same songs and the same jokes, often the same outfit. And comedians, comedians, when they do a show, it's exactly the same show and they do it 40 times on a little tour yeah. and every single night it's the same night. A brain surgeon doesn't make up brain surgery every time. Uh, no, it follows right. a Let's get creative. Steps. Let's see if we go yeah. in a different way. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just figure it out again. Um, yeah. So what we did tend to think of as leaders is that we're meant to somehow do this like improv. It's not improv. And right. same as entrepreneurs, it's not improv. It's a few disciplined things done, done again and again. They always say never meet your heroes because you'll discover that they're extremely good at a small number of things yeah. to the detriment of other things. <laughs> but actually, that once you take them out of their domain, out of that narrow little set of things they're really good at, they pretty much fall off the pedestal real fast. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting one. Because I, I think if you look at the top 20% performers, and again, I know I keep using sports parallels, but one of the things I talk about with young athletes is figure out what you're really good at and be really good at it. If speed is your thing, then be really, really fast. You know, and But they think, oh, no, I've got to cover my weaknesses and I've got to be good over here. You know, it's like, no, just be because coaches love that. They love to see what you're really good at because it builds confidence in the coach. And I, I imagine in business, you know, it's the same. Just be, if, you, if you're a keynote speaker and you like keynote speaking, you're good at presenting, then be it's really, phenomenal. really good at it. You're yeah, really good at it. If systems and Excel is your thing, then be really good at Excel, you know. Really, yeah. Is there a exactly. challenge for entrepreneurs around what you're describing? And I'm putting people into boxes here, but a lot of entrepreneurs, typically they're dynamic. I struggle with this. So I really love zero to a million. That's my favorite part of any business. Um, I almost get bored once we're um, into the millions and I get frustrated. Probably the fastest wealth creation is somewhere between like two and 20 million. If you build a business that's doing two million, it's still not worth anything. But if you build a business that goes from two million to 20 million, now you can sell that to private equity. There's, you know, there's all sorts of exits and there's all sorts of options and also even if you've got fairly narrow margins, you're still making a million of profit. So mm-hmm. um, the two to 20 million jump is much more valuable than the, than the zero to two million. The fun part I really love is the zero to one to two million. I love that um, zero mm-hmm. to two million phase. And that's where you're kind of like establishing the product and getting things set up and putting together that first team who sit around late at night with a pizza. All of that fun stuff happens in the first couple of million I currently have eight companies. So, you know, how do you run eight companies? I can tell you running eight businesses is just really boring. Every 90 days, we do a quarterly reset. We call it an alignment and we revisit our vision, mission and values. We do where do we want to be three years from now, one year from now, 90 days from now. We do uh, what we call an awareness list. We look at accountabilities. So we do that every 90 days. Every Monday morning, we do a Monday morning team meeting. And everyone declares their top three priorities. Three to, we call it a three to six list. So we have a three to six list for the week. And then everyone checks off their three to six on Friday. And we have an, a running awareness list. And it's formulaic. And then that you also, there's only so many assets a business can develop. You just have to pick which assets you're going to develop that year and then develop them. And that creates the growth. So, you know, you basically say, okay, this year we're going to win a major award or this year we're going to relaunch a digital platform and have a portal or this this year we're going to create some content or this year we're going to recruit and train and develop a new part of the team or we're going to launch a new territory. You've only got a certain number of choices that you can basically ideate and discuss and select. Once you crack it, it's actually ridiculous. Like when I listen to the noise of the entrepreneur community, of like coming up with like the latest theory 
And it's like, I run eight companies, none of this stuff actually works. What works is really dull stuff, really boring stuff. The most adventurous and exciting companies do really boring stuff well, and they just consistently do it over and over and over. So the fun part is zero to two million, but it doesn't actually create any wealth. The wealth creation part is the two to 20, but it's really boring. You've just got to do the right thing over and over and over and over again. A lot of entrepreneurs being dynamic, they like the new shiny stuff. Uh, they come yeah. up with ideas all the time. The entrepreneurial curse of a new idea, new idea. They, you know, I don't know how many entrepreneurs you know that own 30 domain names or what plus, but you know, they, they've always, I better buy that yeah. domain. I bet because it's a new idea. You can spend hundreds of millions of dollars and hundreds and hundreds of hours building or months building a bridge. If you leave one section out, it's zero bridges have been built. And I think of that in entrepreneurship. There's the zero bridges paradox of, you can start all these things until you complete something. It's of zero value. And I guess the thing to do there is, and I know you talk about this, but is get a GM. You know, maybe get that person who is the exact opposite of you, who is more operational, more process driven. So you can be that key person of influence and do the be really good at being a key person of influence and yeah. putting out content and so on. So that that's there's one thing I'd like to circle back to with the five Ps. Just just for yeah. those listening, we have we have solopreneurs listening, we have obviously business owners. But there are also quite a lot of business leaders. They might be thinking, well, why would I publish a book? You know, why, why would that be a strength of mine if I'm a, working in, a, in an organization as a leader? I'm assuming, though, but, that there's still content to publish to build your personal brand. Could you, is there something we could go with that just for those that are listening and going, well, that, that doesn't really you, relate to me? Depends. Do you want to be a rock star leader who's crazy in demand or do you want to be a, a good leader who leads a team and who's, you know, who's kind of on the verge of being a manager? The rock star leaders who get paid the big bucks, they write books. You see them everywhere. They're opinionated. They've got their opinions. They love to tell their stories. They put the book out there because it makes them more popular, makes them more in demand. They get more opportunities to lead. They use the book as a way of onboarding their team. They use the book as a way of brainwashing their team you know, and indoctrinating their team to their way of thinking. If you write some sort of a book on leadership or on culture or any of that sort of stuff, and you give away a thousand copies to every company that you'd want to work with in the future, yeah, you're going to drive yeah. the value of your price up, right? You're a commodity. Yeah. Leadership is a commodity. And you're either going to be decommoditized with excess demand versus the your relative supply, and then your yeah. price goes up, or you're going to be one person with one customer, which is your employer, and you're going to not put any thought into you know who else might want you, which is fine, great you know, provided the employer, you know, looks after you. But here's the thing. I know people who have put a a leadership book out there and as if by magic, their employer suddenly includes them in the stock option pool. As if by magic, they suddenly, uh, you know, suddenly get pay rises because it becomes apparent that, oh, this person's bright and shiny. You just can't expect to get paid like a rock star if you don't behave like a rock star. If you're not, if you're not elevating yourself in any way, if you're just doing a good job of leadership. But and, and I know, think we need people that will do that, you know. But I, I think there's a shift, isn't there, that's happening? And rightly or wrongly, I think that you know we talk about storytelling, talked about it earlier. That the ability to get a message out, to articulate a message, to tell your story. It's not publishing content, but it's getting your message out there. I once had the chance to work uh, to interview this guy called Andy Salmon, who was a major general of the Royal Marines, ran the commando unit. He was the head of joint forces in Afghanistan. And I asked him about the five Ps. And he said, oh, that's what we do as major general. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, he said, we're pitching ideas all the time. We're trying to enroll people in, in ways of thinking. He goes, we do so many posters. We do animations. We do audio recordings. 
when we try and get everyone on the same page, we literally create content, we create published materials, and we disseminate it. We give it away. We like, you know, you create, this is what we're trying to achieve. And you give that out to your forces and Mm -hmm. you give them the posters and you give them the videos and you give them the audio. And then you kind of trying to get them into alignment and enroll them in a particular idea. He says, oh, yeah, we do tons of that stuff. So it's a universal act of leadership to put your thoughts and opinions out there and yeah. to kind of share the story and, and all of that sort yeah. of stuff. So Yeah, really important. Good. Daniel, we could keep going because I, I there's so many questions I could ask you, but I'm conscious that you, you're an incredibly busy man. Final thoughts, anything you want to share, any, any kind of message that you think is important for the solopreneur out there who's looking to start, they're looking now to take that next leap over the, over the next 10 years? Well, the first thing I'd say is stop being a solopreneur. Get yourself a team of three or four people around you. You know, one of the biggest universal lessons we learned from the industrial age was division of labor. If someone is in sales, they get good at sales. If someone's in bookkeeping, they get good at bookkeeping. If someone's in working with clients, they get good at working with clients. So teams, teams, teams outperform solopreneurs. Look, I get it. There are people who have smashed it in their career. They've done really well. They're at a certain point in their career where they just want to be booked to speak or they just want to be booked to be a coach and they just want the fees. They want an easy life. At the very least, have an assistant. (laughs) At the very least, have someone who you're training up as your understudy, You know, someone who you're bringing up through the ranks. But as soon as you've got a shred more ambition than that, as soon as it's actually, no, no, I'm on a bit of a mission here, get those first four people around you. Get yep. that team of three or four people because the real division of labor stuff kicks in at around three, four, five people. You're just going to make more money and have more fun. I think people wait, don't they? They think, when I get to this stage, I'll, I'll get that next person. And if I look back 10 years, I could have done it then. Think about ice hockey. Imagine someone's strategy was I'm going to skate around the ice. Once I've scored a goal, I'll then get a second person to come and join me. Yep. And then once we score another goal together, then I'll get a third. It's like you're up against <laughs> five or six other people. They're never going to let you score a goal. You're going to be exhausted. I've heard you say before, you ask people if they've got a cleaner. If you haven't got a cleaner, to me, that's a real red flag with the mindset. If you're not catching an Uber to a meeting and using that time to make some calls, as opposed to sitting in traffic, you know, holding onto a steering wheel, if you haven't figured out that that's worth 20 bucks to get in an Uber, like there's stuff like that that is like, oh God, we're going to have to really start at ground zero. (laughs) So look, at the risk of being condescending, if you haven't got a cleaner, get a cleaner. Like start figuring out how to elevate the value of your time. If you haven't figured out how to get a a virtual assistant in the Philippines who can run your diary and and be an amazing assistant and provide documents to your clients and all of that sort of Mm -hmm. stuff, you can have that person for two grand a month, full time, on your time zone, dedicated, game changer. You can have them part time for a grand a month. Surely that's got to free you up. Daniel, thank you so much. You've been awesome. It's been uh, been excellent speaking to you. I look forward to catching up again soon. Likewise. Cheers. For more free resources and content on how to grow and lead your business and become the best version of yourself, head over to andrewsilito.com.